Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to a very serious news environment. As we record, Hurricane Ian is closing in on Florida. So the cable news is very fixated on this very serious storm. Um, what we're looking for, I guess, around the edges is where the politics still breaks in. Um, the view today, Nick Fondacaro is already at this, where they're screaming at DeSanta somehow because he's working with Biden. Huh? Uh uh, and then, of course, you have people like Bill Weir of CNN trying to say climate change, climate change. We have Don Lemon asking about climate change. And the guy, the meteorologist, was like, you can't tie it to one event. No, we're CNN. We're Greta Thunberg News. We're absolutely going to connect it. Uh, so that's that's happening. We're following that. But it's a it's a slower news uh, media bias environment. When a disaster happens, which should unite us, it should unite Democrats and Republicans. We should all unite in concern for people who refuse to evacuate. That's very serious. Uh, Now, to be less serious for a second, last episode, we talked about this clip of Joe Biden with Elton John. Let's revisit what it was Biden said to celebrate Elton John. By the way... It's all his fault that we're spending $6 billion in taxpayer money this month to help AIDS fight HIV-AIDS. Yes, I did say the fact checkers would come after anybody on Facebook or Twitter who said, look, Biden suggested Elton John committed a whole bunch of AIDS. (laughs) And there they were, PolitiFact, etc., Uh, You can expect that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't mock it because Biden's always doing something, you know. And let's go back to the idea. If Trump tried to be unserious and make fun of somebody, they would take it super serious. If they thought it would hurt Trump, they would just neglect all humor in it. All humorous context would be removed. Like, hey, China, get us the stuff on Hillary's emails. There was a lot of humor in there didn't matter. That was Trump being an enemy of the people. So today, one of the things I'd like to discuss is our new numbers on PolitiFact. They're having their United Facts of America festival this week. uh, And uh, with the Pointer Institute that runs PolitiFact. And uh, as usual, they have a cast of liberal journalists Brian Stelter, not there this year, but he was there last year. This year they had CNN legal analyst Joan Biscopic, uh, Donnie O'Sullivan, who's always running around interviewing crazy MAGA people and screaming about misinformation. PBS anchor Judy Woodruff is the star of The Middle Day here on Wednesday. Yesterday it was NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Deggins and I have been around the block We've had some raucous phone calls. Um, Before he was TV critic, he was uh, a writer for the Tampa Bay Times, out of which PolitiFact sprung. Uh, And uh, Deggins was saying all this stuff about he's being very disturbed that after Sean Hannity had his program, 
he and Trump would have a phone call. And they discussed policy. Policy. Rachel Maddow doesn't do that with Biden. Well, it probably doesn't happen nightly, but you can look it up in The Atlantic where it talks about how Rachel Maddow is a frequent White House visitor. That was under Obama. I believe she was there seven times. Some of them she met with Obama. Sometimes she was just in the, in the White House. But you can be assured, yet this is always a question you can ask as a media ethicist. Is a journalist, or in this case an opinion show host, visiting a White House um, where they're not gaining an interview, um, are they just going to get their t- talking points handed to them? Uh, to really justify that or understand that, you'd have to look at what they say after they come out, I suppose. Um, but this is one of those usual things where they try to suggest that somehow there isn't a lot of communication between the Biden White House and CNN, between the Biden White House and MSNBC, between the Biden White House and every other liberal news network. You know, the way these people dig up the texts of everybody associated with January 6th, can you imagine what we could do by, we have found Rachel Maddow's texts. Or if we're going to play Mark Meadows, we have found Ron Klain's texts. Let's take a look at what Ron Klain is saying to MSNBC. Behind the scenes. Wouldn't that be revealing? I imagine it would. See, but the news media never want to tell you stuff about their, themselves. When they had this breach at WikiLeaks and we got, we got a whole bunch of juicy emails in John Podesta's account, John Podesta working with Hillary Clinton, all kinds of sappy emails from liberal journalists and they were going back and forth. One of the stars of that collection was John Harwood. John Harwood kissing up to John Podesta real hard. Um, and the news media did not want to report on WikiLeaks about the media. They've all run fast and furious after everything Mark Meadows texted, anything that Ginny Thomas, Mrs. Clarence Thomas, texted. But they had zero interest in telling you anything about what the, those emails to John Podesta between to John Podesta and the media were showing. They weren't interested in that. They didn't think you had a need to know. All right, so we studied PolitiFact again. Uh, we found this last year. We did the first year of fact-checking of President Biden, and then fact-checking opposed to President Biden. Some of these are critics. Some of these are actual Republicans. But many of them are just things circulating on social media. But the, the habit shows you how defensive they are. So in the first year, Biden was fact-checked 40 times. Biden critics were checked on 230 occasions. They're way more sensitive about somebody who might be mangling the truth about Biden than they are about Biden mangling the truth. So then we decided, first I started counting six months, then we saw they're having this conference in September, so let's do eight months. So from January 2022 to September 19, that's the way we picked this up. The first one was January 20, 2021 through January 19, 2022. We found 18 PolitiFact checks on Biden and 108 fact checks of Biden critics or critical Biden info. That is exactly 
a six to one ratio in the last eight months. Now you put it all together over his first 20 months, it's 58 fact checks of Biden, 338 fact checks of Biden critics. So that's 5.8 to one. Here's the other differential over this period, over these 20 months, Biden landed on the mostly false, false pants on fire side in 28 of 58 fact checks. Now, this isn't exactly right because there's zero pants on fire for Biden. He doesn't have one pants on fire ruling while he's been president. Uh, But the fact checks about Biden were overwhelmingly negative. 88% mostly false, false or pants on fire. So... Biden landed on mostly false or worse 48% of the time. That, I think, is fairly standard. The way the fact-checkers work is that usually they're fact-checking something that was that sounded sketchy. They're not really fast to do things where you sound incredibly true and everybody thinks they're obvious. Um, but, you know, with Biden critics, it's even worse. The 2.6% of checks about Biden were true or mostly true. Nine out of 338 were true or mostly true. Overwhelmingly, 298 out of 338 were mostly false, false pants on fire. Zero pants on fire committed by Biden. He's had only six in his entire career since PolitiFact started up in 2007. But there have been 79 pants on fire rulings against Biden critics in these first 20 months. Zero to 79. Now, that's not to say every one of these pants on fire rulings isn't pants on fire. You know, some of them are Joe Biden's not dead. Hunter Biden, they did two of these. Hunter Biden was not arrested. Uh, they did two in July, one in July, one in August, on Biden threatens to assassinate Ukraine president. Yeah, that's that's pants on fire. What you can say on some level is, was anybody really going to believe that if it was put out in the first place? Now, why would they do something that easy to knock down? Well, because they have a program with Facebook, and then those those Facebook messages get a big gray screen over them saying that they're false or misleading. So... Nobody's really going to object. Yes, Joe Biden is not dead. But you kind of wonder, you know. So, yes, somebody would say, well, Tim, you, you know, a lot of these, they're very justified false claims. Well, but part of the point here is to say Biden can say Afghanistan was an extraordinary success, not pants on fire. We have 0% inflation, not pants on fire. In April, he claimed he was a full professor for four years at the University of Pennsylvania, which is absolutely false. He was a celebrity professor who showed up from time to time. You, calling him a full professor is a lie, but that's what Biden said. But they, of course, called it half true. That's how energetically they're trying to, 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 to shape things. All right, one of the other things we're working on this week, uh, big uh, kerfuffle about the January 6th committee. This is before the hurricane, before they canceled the hearing because of the hurricane. On Saturday, uh, we began hearing, or Friday, we began hearing, oh, 
Former Congressman Denver Riggleman is going to be on 60 Minutes. He has a new book. They just announced it on when, last Wednesday that he had a new book coming from Macmillan Publishers. If you're unfamiliar with Macmillan, they've published a pile of trashy Trump-hating books. That's what they do now. That's where they make their money, selling trashy anti-Trump books. This is merely the latest. Now, Denver Riggleman was a congressman from what you might call Northwest Virginia. It's, it, it, his district, what it was, was you know on the edge of the Virginia suburbs, meaning I'm in Warrenton. He was my congressman for a while. Denver Riggleman. I met him once at a Daily Caller gig. Seemed like a nice guy. Um, And the way he was sort of thrown out of office was very sketchy. And that is they had a primary in this district in Lynchburg during COVID where you literally had to drive to a church in Lynchburg and cast your vote. It was not important enough to me, for example, to drive to Lynchburg to cast my vote for Denver Riggleman. The man who beat him was named Bob Good, who was, guess what, from Lynchburg. That was sketchy. Um, They talked a little bit of this on 60 Minutes, was that Denver Riggleman had uh, officiated a gay wedding between two staffers, and that was the beginning of the end, because Bob Good was associated with Liberty University and the and the Lynchburg, you know, evangelical Protestant crowd. Um, that's obviously not the only reason that that Riggleman lost, but it's 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 sort of cast this way. So unsurprisingly, Riggleman, upset at sort of being cast out from the far right, joined the January sixth committee. Liz Cheney got him in. Isn't that nice? So of course, sixty minutes begins by saying, Riggleman. Once a member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus. Yes, freedom. It's ultra-conservative, don't you know? Always remember that when the liberal media labels somebody, it's from where they are. They think that where they stand is the absolute center of American politics. I'm not kidding. The people who think you can have an abortion after birth the people who think that you can decide which gender you are and then change it again tomorrow. Or maybe later at three, you'll be a man again. Please use my pronouns, whatever I decide they are today. Yeah, that's the center, the sensible center. So what happens is that anybody who's a conservative Republican, which is what you would be if you're in the House Freedom Caucus, you're ultra conservative. Now, Riggleman went to work for a committee created by Nancy Pelosi, very carefully selected and picked. I call it the Pelosi-picked panel. Not an ultra-liberal. Nancy Pelosi's not an ultra-liberal. You know why? Because these people are right there at the refrigerator eating ice cream off her spoon. That's why. They're all the same. So the big thing here was that what was interesting about this segment, just if you're following the January 6th committee, Riggleman's the guy that got several big, huge liberal media stories going. And that is he got into the Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff text messages. And then part of that, of course, was the messages back and forth from Mrs. Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas. They've had 
huge, made huge scandalabras of those. So that's where Denver Riggleman came in and did something for the Democrats that they liked. Denver is very upset about QAnon. He's, it, he wildly inflates how influential they are in the Republican Party. But, you know, just, just the terminology they're using in this, in this segment shows you what a publicity segment it was. The Meadows texts were the crown jewels. Riggleman made a graph of rioter messaging he called the monster. And then Bill Whitaker explained, you, these communications, you say, they read like an infection. All right, so, yeah, we're, uh, we're doctoring these things up really good. But here's the point where he said that the text, Riggleman says, it's an administration that was eaten up with apocalyptic messianic buffoonery. Okay, so here's how that went down. And then listen to what Whitaker says in response. From the sheer number of texts, it seems almost half the world had Mark Meadows' phone number. The Meadows text messages show you an administration that was completely eaten up with a digital virus called QAnon and conspiracy theories and apocalyptic messianic buffoonery. You can look at the text messages as that roadmap, but it's also a look into the psyche of the Republican Party today. People in the Republican Party would say, you're an opponent. You're the opposition. Of course you're going to say this. I would tell them this. I'm not their enemy. I'm just a guy trying to tell you that the data doesn't support that the election was stolen. Now, does that make any sense to anybody? I mean, here, Whitaker, this is the one spot in this 13-minute segment where Whitaker suggests something, pretending at least, to be what a Republican rebuttal would be. Well, they'd say you're partisan. Of course you'd say that. You're anti-Republican now. And that spurred the silliest part of this, where Riggleman's saying, I'm not anti-Republican, I just say you're a bunch of QAnon buffoons. I'm not a QAnon buffoon. I tend to vote Republican. I'm not a QAnon buffoon. I think QAnon are a bunch of buffoons. But it's that idea of let's take the fringe and smear them all over the rest of the Republicans, which is a standard liberal media tactic. Now, can you imagine? We take Antifa and we say, well, everybody here is Antifa. Joe Biden is Antifa. Ron Klain is Antifa. Let's see his text messages because you know he's caught up in Antifa buffoonery. They're not going to do that. They're going to be very careful and say, oh, no, first of all, we can't associate Biden with Antifa. And by the way, they're very idealistic youngsters. So they're not even negative. <laughs> this is the way the game is played. But look, it got worse. So there's 13 minutes plus maybe 20 seconds. That's not counting tick, tick, tick at the beginning. But let's just say the interview segment itself is about 1320. Then you go to CBS Mornings, and in the 8 o'clock hour on Monday, there's another 8 minutes and another 20 seconds. So it's almost 22 minutes of publicity for Riggleman and his book from Macmillan. And then there was just, they come out of a 60 minutes clip, and Tony DeCopel, who's married to Katie Turr over at MSNBC, started talking about his mother living in West Virginia. And this is where you get frustrated with people is that when it comes to the liberal media, there are basically two sets of Americans. There are the wise Americans that vote Democrat and clearly watch a lot of CBS. 
And then there's people who don't watch CBS or CNN who clearly are a pile of idiots because if you're not an idiot, you're getting all of your talking points from CBS. So DeCopo's basically saying not just that people are opposed to the January 6th committee. Oh, no, no. He's going to pretend, oh, the, the, the Trumpers don't, they don't even realize there is a January 6th committee. Oh, boy. Denver Ringelman joins us now. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for being here. That's an explosive soundbite. And I want to get into the details of that White House sure. call. But first, big picture, because where my mom lives in West Virginia, where you're from in Virginia, where your folks are from in West Virginia as well, they may not even know that there is a committee investigating January 6th. And if right. they have heard of it, they think it was a peaceful demonstration where a couple people got out of hand. Or much, they don't a, care. much to do about or they nothing. don't care at all. Or they don't care. So, so from where you're sitting as a former Republican congressman, uh, what's the reality for people? Well, the reality, you know, for us, we, we have this sort of microcosm, uh, you know, owning distilleries, you know, in Virginia and Pennsylvania. We have tens of thousands of people come through. And since I've been on the committee, most people don't even know about it. They don't know that there's a committee report coming. They just think January 6th was this little thing that happened and we needed to move on. And really, you know, it probably was just a bunch of people who wanted to save America and were patriots. There is so much to fact check in this. I mean, let's start with the idea of, OK, Denver Riggleman, I guess, has a bourbon spot in Virginia and a bourbon spot in Pennsylvania. Does anyone believe this guy has tens of thousands of people walking through these distilleries? I mean, I'd like to see the, the sign-up sheet. But even more, I'd like to take a survey of these so-called tens of thousands all being so-called ignorant morons who don't know there's a January 6th committee, which really it does say I haven't seen a lick of CNN because if I'm watching CNN, it's either commercials or January 6th. All right, I exaggerate a little. Not half as much as Tony DeCopel. It's just insulting to try to treat people like... A, they don't know there's a January 6th committee, or B, they think January 6th was a walk in the park. Yes, there were people who tried to say it was, you know, you know, a couple people got out of hand. No, you can see the videos, and no, that is a riot. The word riot fits, just like it does after George Floyd, but they like to call that a rebellion or a racial reckoning. You know, you can say the January 6th committee is overwrought. You can say the January 6th committee is a Pelosi-picked panel of propaganda. But they want to pretend that there are two sides here. They're the smart people who are with Pelosi, and they're all the morons with Trump. That's just the way it's done. So then they go to Gail King. Gail King comes in her fancy blue glasses that probably cost $2,000. I bet her glasses are more expensive than Al Roker's. Maybe they get them all free. You know, this is what happens when you're on television is that Warby Parker or one of these people are like, hey, look, Al Roker, I give you 10 pairs of color frame glasses. Then just say our name on air a couple of times and they're free. Anyway, Gail King, who we have established here at Newsbusters, was a big Obama donor. She went into the Obama White House on the night of the first Obama inauguration, she went in to party with Oprah and Barack and Michelle. She has vacationed with the Obamas. The idea that CBS has made this woman the queen of the morning show tells you CBS does not care if you want somebody objective in that seat because she is not. And everybody should know it. If you don't know it, 
you got to come to Newsbusters. Nope, not the end of the show yet. Hang on. So she repeated this whole kind of stuff about how, oh, Riggleman found the crown jewels. And it was like staring into the mouth of madness. Now, the riot itself might seem like staring into the mouth of madness or the fists of madness. But I mean, again, it's everything here is promoting, huckstering, you know, it's like a carnival. It's not a festival of facts like PolitiFact thinks they're running. And then they talk about the death threats. Oh, poor Denver. There were death threats. Now, I don't want to say there weren't death threats, but it's like, I certainly don't want any. I certainly don't make any. But there's some times where you just feel like this is sort of a political shtick. You know, they're trying to build sympathy for him. Oh, somebody vandalized his truck, I think. His mother decided he was a terrible person because he didn't like Trump anymore. They lined all this stuff up. Oh, poor Denver. You know, we, we can focus on what happened on January 6th, but guess what else they don't do? They talk about the, the Capitol policeman who died afterwards of strokes or suicides. They don't want to talk about the thing a couple of months later when a guy who loved Louis Farrakhan killed a Capitol policeman. That is forgotten. They're not bringing that up at the Pelosi pick panel because that doesn't fit the narrative. In this case, almost 22 minutes, CBS were being repeaters, not reporters. They're just like the January 6th hearings themselves where everything is inside Pelosi's bubble. We will only discuss the things that Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin want to discuss, and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. We're all inside the bubble. We're going to stay inside the bubble. We're all going to pretend that we are the only idealists, that we are for democracy. And there's no opposing point of view. This is obviously not a trial, because in a trial you get to present a defense. There's never been a defense in these January 6 hearings. They're going to put out now some 800-page report on paper with no hint of a defense. And then they call this whole process saving democracy. This is the thing where we really do need to make fun of these people, that they think their democracy and the way to run a democracy is to say, you people don't get to speak. You people are all liars and fascists. And I'm talking about somebody like me, right? Not really a Trump fan. Voted for him, just not much of a fan. I'm a fascist. Just like they're saying this woman in Italy is a fascist. Didn't you get a kick out of that? I swear I'm ramping up. But the whole idea of them saying, well, it was founded in the late 1940s with its roots in fascism. And somebody was just daring enough to go, okay, so in 1947, what were the roots of the Democratic Party? Hmm. What were all the Southern Democrats in the Senate in 1947? Does that mean today's party has racist roots? Oh, you can't do that. I don't know a lot about Italian politics. But you know, you just get that sense of, uh, you know, oh, she's... She likes, she says she's for faith, family, and freedom. She seems to be against gender ideology. She's not wild about massive immigration. 
fascist. <laughs> okay. One last note. You know, somebody brought in the new Criterion. Uh, it's the new one. And I do enjoy reading the new Criterion when I get my hands on one for their media critic, James Bowman. I enjoy James Bowman. Um, and he has this his piece here in October. I'm just going to give you a little snippet of it. Um, but the, 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 the main thought here is how the green agenda, where they are always talking about a crisis in the future, is causing an energy crisis in the present. They're always panicking about what's going to happen in the future, and through their policies, they create a, a crisis in the present. Here's a snippet, just to give you a snippet. Decades of reporting on prospective environmental disasters many years into the future must have blinded many in the media to economic disasters that their countermeasures are producing in the here and now. Even when these immediate crises are upon them, many politicians and media folk can't see them or their own part in creating them. That, at least, is the generous interpretation of their obtuseness. The not-so-generous one is that the hypocritical future disasters are deliberately exaggerated in order to make the present-day disasters more acceptable and voters more willing to stay the environmentalist course, as Boris Johnson has urged them to do. This is kind of his point is that especially in Europe, where energy prices are getting ridiculous, the EU is all green. They're all in on the green. And it's causing an energy to be really too expensive with a winter coming to Europe. And that's sort of the picture he's painting. And look, we've seen this for many years. I have been at the Media Research Center doing these stories since 1989. Earthwatch, 1989. If we don't do something by the year 2000, we're cooked. Paul Ehrlich came on the Today Show and said, you'll soon be tying your boat to the Washington Monument. Yeah, that has yet to happen. The Potomac River has not swelled to the bottom of the Washington Monument. Doesn't matter. This is James Bowman's point. Is in the, in the late 80s, this really broke out in 1988, right about the time I got married, in the summer of 88, it was hot, there was a drought. That was the global warming kickoff. And one of the things the media does not do is go back and look at all of the disasters they were predicting that were going to come in the 90s or by the year 2000, where then we move it and then it's, oh, some time in 2010, there's going to be a disaster. What are they doing now? We have 12 years left. The goalposts always move. A lot of times they talk about, we have to do blah blah by 2030 or 2035. The goalposts always move. The policies always get more extreme. They want to end fossil fuels. Biden ran on ending fossil fuels. And just as Bowman suggests, it was not suggested that this was an extreme or, a, you know, frankly, crazy idea. Because the media, yes, the media are green. The media are ultra-liberal, and they don't see that what they're proposing sounds a little kooky. When you say it's kooky, you're the kook. That's the way it works. So, 
stay stay up with us. We, you know, we read the other media critics too. There's lots of good media critics out there, but we like to think you find the best of them at Newsbusters. Come once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>